Now, I'm from a multi-ethnic church in Jackson, Mississippi, okay? So y'all feel free to talk back to me a little bit. Give me some amens. Let me know how it's doing. Talk back to me. Um, and uh, I wanted to just kind of start here uh, just by way of uh, coming home. Just want to say how great it is to be home. Um, we, uh, man, we love Mississippi, my family and I, and my family's over here, my wife Julie, my mama's here from Fairfield County, got friends from all over, Martha Jane, Thomas, and Odie. Um, we love Mississippi, and it's in Israel, but it ain't quite Judah. <laughs> we love Clemson, South Carolina, we love this church. I want to thank you, uh, Clemson Presbyterian, for welcoming us here with open arms. Rob Porter literally gave me the tie off his neck to wear today. Um, Chris, poor Chris Peters has taken three loads of cardboard boxes to every, we've, we've been to every landfill in Pickens County the last couple days. Um, the Dodds, the Schulers for filling our fridge. We're still eating on that mac and cheese he brought us. Um, Will Huss, so many that um, I knew from Julie and I when we were members here and being under care of the session when I was in seminary. So it, it is so great indeed to be back. A um, uh, couple of things I wanted to say just first of all, um, I heard uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan share this with a group of students uh, at RTS when I was in Jackson. And what he told me was he said, Otis and the students here, the first thing you need to do as a minister of the gospel, and I think this is true for us as Christians, the first thing we do when we wake up in the morning is to believe the things we preach. To wake up in the morning and remind ourselves of the goodness of Jesus and believe it. And Christian, that is our duty every morning. To renew our faith and to renew our fealty to our King. To run to our Savior like my children used to run to me when I came in the door. And now my dog runs to me when I come in the door. <laughs> my King is home. To run to Him like a child. My talk today, I say talk, it's kind of a testimony, kind of a sermonette. I'm not an ordained teaching elder. Uh, I'm an ordained ruling elder. I do have a seminary degree. But I'm largely ignorant as to what it means to put together a good sermon. But as we say in Mississippi, ignorance has never stopped a good southerner from speaking his mind. <laughs> so that's what I intend on doing. Uh, I'm going to boast a lot of my weakness. Uh, it's not something I think we do enough of in our society, boasting in our weaknesses. So if you would, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 12. We'll be starting in 2 Corinthians 12, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 10, and then I'll pray for us. Now, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10 is our family verse. 
we have it up on our wall in our home. Um, and uh, part of my sermon today, I'm going to be telling some stories. Those of y'all, if you know any Charlestonians, we love stories. So I'm going to be telling some stories today. Uh, but it's directly uh, influenced by this passage and its impact in our life. So if we start at uh, chapter 12, verse 1, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told. Which, may, which man may not utter. And on behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited. Amen? Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for this day, a day to come before you and acknowledge you are the great high priest. You are the son of the living God. You advocate and intercede even before us now. Spirit, you yearn with groanings too deep. And I pray, Lord, that your power of your spirit will be poured out upon this empty, broken vessel. That it may fill the hearts and lives of those who hear. And encourage them to see the power of Christ. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, boasting and weakness is not something we do a lot of in our society. It's not something we do well. This is especially true among Christians, elders, professors, pastors. In our culture, displaying weakness is not common, nor is it particularly valued. I think this says something about the effect of uh, you might, what you might call social Darwinism on our cultural landscape. I think it says something about 
its pervasiveness into American Christianity. And I think it's worth kind of asking ourselves this morning, Christian, as a church, I study church history. I study 19th century Southern Presbyterianism. What are we known for in this country? In our history? Do we have a reputation for our proximity and advocacy for the weak, the marginalized, the downtrodden, the poor, the sojourner, the disabled? Or do we often seek to be known or to build a reputation for our desire for cultural power? for influence, for aligning ourselves with the strong as the world, as the eyes of the world see strength. What are we known for? The Bible tells us that God's power is made perfect in our weakness and in and through our weaknesses. Through the strength and power of God, we are able to share with the world Christ and Him crucified. So that God's power comes to be displayed in the midst of our frailty and brokenness. It's not about us, y'all. I think about this a lot whenever I teach. That if the Spirit of God is in it, there is much power. If He's not, I can deliver the exact same message. To no effect. Growing up in Charleston, um, I, uh, I, I played football, and uh, my identity was in football, and I became determined that I was going to play football in college. If you would, okay, now, so I'm just going to say, I'm a visual guy, so I've got some visuals today. Is that all right with y'all? All right, got my first visual here. All right, that's me in Charleston, South Carolina, Bishop England High School. I literally laid the sod on the field for our first football season on Daniel Island. I was wanting to play college football so badly. I had come my sophomore year. I had started lifting weights. There was a guy who played ahead of me who was an all-district left tackle he taught me what I was supposed to learn my junior year. I got, I got to the point where I, was, I, I had gained 50 pounds in weightlifting. And, and back then they told us to take this stuff called creatine and lift weights and all this stuff. And I got up to where I was playing at 275 pounds. I was our blind side tackle. That means I protected the quarterback's side, his blind side. I was so excited to maybe play football in college, and everyone who knew me knew two things. Football, and I love Clemson. <laughs> that was about all people knew about me in high school. And one day, I'm sitting at home, and I get a letter in the mail. And it's a letter from the Citadel. And the letter was from a guy named Coach Dave Salazzo. He later coached for Maryland under Ralph Regan. 
And Dave Salazzo said, Otis, we've seen you on tape. We want you to come to the Hofstra game. I want you to meet all the other recruits. And we'd like you to come play football at the Citadel. Now, y'all, you would have thought I was something. I was so excited. I couldn't wait to go to this game. I went to this game. I played, I tried to play out of my mind that senior year. And they offered me a spot to play D1 college football at the Citadel. Life was great. My identity was in, in this. I got to tell people this. That's how I was known. I had also recently become a follower of Christ, but you didn't really know it to look at me. Thank you to Reverend Herman Robinson. Thank you to Ben Daniel. Thank you to my mama. Thank you to uh, Ben Jackson. Thank you to Shea Gregory, who are opening God's word to me as a high school student. But Ben will tell you that's not how I was known. Then, in a playoff game against Silver Bluff, in the fourth quarter, I started to feel numbness in my arms and legs. The next week, my mom took me to see a famous neurologist in Charleston, and after an MRI, he came back and he said, Otis, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you have the spinal cord of a 75-year-old man. You have multiple level disc herniations, ruptured discs, and an early onset of degenerative disc disease. I told him about the coaching staff and my plan of going to, Coach Lazo said he wanted me to gain another 30 pounds and come play at the Citadel. And he said, son, if you go and play football at the Citadel, you'll be in a wheelchair in less than a year. That ended up being my last game. The last game of my senior season, the last time I'd wear a uniform of any kind. I went home, I wept, I was broken. Everything about who I was and who I thought I was gonna be was over. To make matters worse, I couldn't run couldn't play basketball. Every time I stood for more than a few minutes, I was in incredible pain. Luckily, providentially, my mother had encouraged me to apply to the finest university in South Carolina. The University of South Carolina, colon, Clemson. This was obviously before Clemson had any kind of academic standards to speak of. I decided to go and get a college degree en route to preparing for the ministry. I was involved when I came here in every conceivable campus ministry you could possibly be involved in. My buddy Andy can attest to that. I was at FCA, RUF, CREW. If it had an acronym and it was a campus ministry, I was there. I was a Young Life leader at uh, T.L. Hanna High School. And one day I met with the intern, the RUF intern, whose name is Michael Craig. And what Michael told me is he said, Otis, have you ever considered that maybe God brought you to Clemson to study? <laughs> I said, what? Incredible. Really? Studying? And because of this beautiful woman, Julie Pickett, who pointed out that if you study history, you don't have to take econ, I became a history major. <laughs> and I loved it. 
and I, I, I began studying, and I just fell in love with reading. I fell in love with learning about the place I had come from, and our southern landscape, and the nation. I knew I was going to have to do something with my mind, and that I couldn't be dependent upon my legs or my physical ability. Well, about 10 months of being at Clemson, I was feeling numbness in my legs again. As I was walking to class one day, I collapsed to the ground. I couldn't pick myself up. And after several more doctor's visits, I ended up making it through the semester. Due to some kind friends who drove me around, a handicapped parking tag, valuable thing to have as an undergraduate, lots of painkillers, muscle relaxers, epidural shots, anti-inflammatories. That summer I found myself at home surrounded by my old high school trophy stuff. Daily reminders of my brokenness. I couldn't get out of bed without my mama's help. I couldn't use the restroom. I couldn't bathe or put socks on without help. I played video games till 2 in the morning every night and slept until noon or later the next day. I fell into an endless cycle of medicines and slipped into a massive depression. There was no feeling anything. I thought, God, why did you do this to me? I am 19 years old. I can't walk. I'm broken already. I have all this life left to live. I'll never be an adequate husband. I'll never be able to protect our home. I'll never be an adequate father that can pick up his children. Why? God, I'm begging you, take this away. And as I was thinking, I looked over on my bedside table, and I had a Bible right there that Ben Daniel had given me coming to my freshman year at Clemson. And I opened to this passage. And it said, my grace is sufficient. And my power is made perfect. And where you are laying in this bed right here. I realized that Paul had suffered too. And it seemed like God actually superintended and sovereignly controlled his suffering. As if God had a kind of plan I began to think, could God have a plan and a purpose for my suffering, my pain, my inability to walk? And I began to read the, my, the Bible more. I started going to physical therapy sessions. They used to put, put electronic shocks on your back back then. Did that. And as I was doing this, I would have these conversations with older gentlemen and older ladies that were going through the same thing. And we talk about pain meds and numbness and things like how scary it is to go out in public. And that someone might bump into you. The suffering and pain and brokenness began to develop within me a heart and an empathy for others in suffering. The Lord was working in my weakness to better understand how other people were suffering. He was using my weakness and my brokenness to display something about his power. And I began to think, you know what? I made it through a spring semester at Clemson. Maybe, just maybe, 
I can make it through a fall. And I became bound and determined to make it back to Clemson for football season. And guess what? Y'all remember that old, that old uh, scoreboard? We've added a few more national championships. For those of y'all who aren't Clemson fans since then, uh, we've added a few more. But I never got to play football. I never got to suit up in any way. But I did get to stand at the bottom of the hill when the Tigers ran down. Let me just tell you something. What an image. What a picture of our identity. That y'all, one day, we're going to stand before the throne and the Lamb. And then he's going to open a scroll. And he's going to sing a new song. And we might not be one of the 24 elders. We might not even be in the first row. But we'll be with him. And it'll be enough. I met that beautiful woman there in that picture. She, she, would, she would go and get Chick-fil-A biscuits and say, let's go get on the elliptical machine. <laughs> I got stronger. And I thought to myself as I was on that elliptical machine, what a woman. <laughs> Two years later, we were engaged. We graduated. We got married. And we moved to St. Louis all in one month. <laughs> Within three months at the seminary, within three months, I was in the library studying Greek, and I've since then tried to figure out if there's a connection between the two things I'm about to tell you, Greek and pain and affliction. <laughs> but the night I was studying Greek, I felt the same numbness in my legs. Instantly, y'all, anyone who's had this pain knows fear, dread, pain. It started to grip me, and I said, oh no, it's returned the thorn. I tried to walk and I fell to the floor. I couldn't move. And for another three months, the cycles, depression, pain medicine, my first year of marriage, on the sofa every day, my wife having to help me put my socks on. There it is. I'm inadequate. One day, several months into this, I was laying on my sofa, and I remembered a lecture from Dr. Phil Douglas, who taught a class called Spiritual Ministry Formation. And Dr. Douglas, one night, started walking us through the great theologians of the Reformation. From the 16th century all the way up to the 18th century, all the great theologians. And do you all know what all those theologians have in common? Suffering. Some had incredible physical ailments. Some had spouses and children who died. Some had financial or professional calamity. Others, depression, isolation, brokenness. And I began to see that God was at work in using broken, weak people for his glory. But that also, in the midst of your suffering... God tenderly comes alongside you and pours out his spirit to you in a way that I have not experienced a pouring out of his spirit when I think I got it all together. 
Since then, this back has come and hit me probably four or five times over the last 18 years. In 2018, I had fallen again, and this time I got up to stand up, and the pain, y'all, was so awful, I passed out standing up. And I fell forward, and I fell into a built-in bookcase in our bathroom. Yeah, I had built-in bookcases in my bathroom. (laughs) I woke up, blood everywhere, my wife standing over me, and my teeth had busted out of my mouth. And I spent the next several days in the ER, in the hospital. And y'all, that was the same summer I was set to go to Atlanta, Georgia, to speak to 2,000 ruling and teaching elders at the General Assembly in Atlanta. And I looked up at my dentist and I said, Sir, you have to help me. And he said, Why? And I said, Listen, I got to get up to speak in front of 2,000 people in Atlanta, Georgia this summer. And I'm from Mississippi. I can't get up there and not have my teeth. (laughs) He got it fixed and I got up and spoke. But I realized God was doing something else with this thorn in my flesh. He was preparing me for something and for someone. What does it say there in verse 10? You look at verse 10. For the sake of Christ, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In January of 2016, Sadie Margaret Pickett was born. We went to see the doctor at 20 weeks, and he said, there's no amniotic fluid. Y'all might not know what that means, but that means her lungs weren't weren't growing like they they were supposed to. We drink in that amniotic fluid in in the womb, and it helps our lungs expand and grow. She didn't have it. And she was born at 24 weeks. That's Sadie. That's my pinky finger in her hand. I could take my ring off my hand and put it on her arm. She was about a pound when she was born. I could see through her skin to see her organs moving. Her eyelids were still sealed when she came out. From 2016 to about 2017, she was the weakest child in the NICU in Mississippi. Which would place her very high in the running for weakest child in the country. She could have died at any moment. In fact, during this time period, my wife and I were called up seven times. That number seven is a big deal in the Bible. Seven times we were called to the hospital... Mr. and Mrs. Pickett, Sadie is not going to make it through the night. You need to come up and say goodbye. And we go up to the hospital, and old Sadie be in there fighting. On the nitrous, or on the oxygen, or whatever they were giving her, she was fighting for every breath. And she made it out all seven times. Many of y'all were praying. Our church was praying. There were missionaries in Vietnam and Peru praying for Sadie. People praying all over the world for her. And each time she made it. 
Her life displayed God's power made perfect in weakness. Y'all, God used that baby. He preached through her with every breath she took. He used her to bring people to Christ. God will have have brought more people to him using my infant daughter who could never say a word than he ever will in my entire life. He taught children in our church how to pray. Adults had a prayer. Adults came up to me and said, I've never had much of a prayer life, but I set my alarm to pray for your daughter every morning, and now God and I talk all the time. We had our funeral. Little children coming to the church and coming to the funeral. What is a child supposed to think looking at a, a dead baby? Life is uncertain. It's finite, but our life is not all there is. It taught our church body how to love one another, to knit us together. It taught us how to advocate for those who are weak and disabled. Our church now has, in Jackson, has a thriving disability ministry in the life of the church called RED, Redeemer Engaging Disability, another acronym. What is it about Christians and acronyms? She got to come home for Christmas. That was her Christmas outfit. She had been in the NICU her whole life. This is right before she turned one. It was a daily struggle. We went from having teams of doctors and nurses to just Julie and I and one nurse. Y'all, she was on 25 different medicines. Julie would have to get up in the morning and crush pills and pound them and put them into syringes. And it, it took an hour just to get all the medicines ready. And then she'd do it again in four hours. The doctor said every breath she took, y'all know when you drink coffee, the little black stir straws in the coffee? You know what I'm talking about? The doctor said every breath she took was like sucking through one of those straws. Every breath, broken, stress. But God provided a lot of beautiful moments on the way. We got to celebrate her first birthday. That's her first tiger rag. She was not real happy with me taking that picture. Go ahead to the next one. She got to, on her birthday, taste icing, applesauce. She got to hear my children fussing with one another. Sitting at the table. And I began to realize that God was at work in me, in my pain, and my brokenness, all those years to prepare me to be Sadie's daddy. In June of 2017, we got to bring her before the church for covenant baptism. That's my pastor, Albert McGowan. First time she'd ever left the house not to come to a doctor's office. One elder in our presbytery who was following Sadie Margaret's story through my my wife's Facebook post called me one day and he said, you know, Otis, I feel 
covenantally bound to this baby. That'll preach, won't it? He came to the baptism. He's the one who purchased that baptismal gown she was wearing that day. Isn't that an amazing picture of the power of God at work in weakness? The people that had, did not know us were praying. We were being knit together in love, reaching out in care and growing in their faith. All because of a sick little girl who had never uttered a word. That is the gospel. That is covenant theology applied. Let me apologize briefly to my friends who may be in other denominations and play a little insider Presbyterian baseball here for a second. But God works through the weak. When we baptize our infants, we recognize this. That a sign and a seal is being made on someone's behalf that is not strong enough to make it on their own. One of our elders shared a passage with me that I want to read to you from a theologian. And I don't have the theologian's name because he sent it to me on a screenshot. For those of y'all who don't know what that is, he took a picture of it in a book with his cell phone and texted it to me. But this is what it says. It says, but here we have a strange thing. Calvinism is often looked upon as stern and forbidding. Many are horrified at the teaching of predestination and total depravity. Salvation that is, for, that is for all and is actual because of what each is able to supply seems more attractive than a salvation that is only certain for some because none can do anything. But the truth is that Calvinism is merciful and the opposing view harsh because the latter denies salvation to the weak and the helpless, granting it only to the strong and the able. How can infants dying in infancy decide for Christ? She never uttered a word. How can the mentally deficient of their own will choose him when they can't even understand simple words? Armenianism sounds very appealing when men imagine they have the ability to do in their own strength what must be done for salvation, but offers no comfort for the helpless, the helplessness of parents whose children die in infancy. One week after her baptism, this is her baptism. By the way, I've got a YouTube channel. It's got two things on it. Her baptism and her funeral. And you can just Google Sadie Margaret Pickett and it'll pull up. It is the most beautiful baptism I've ever seen in my entire life. Maybe I'm partial. But what a beautiful picture Elbert gave of the importance of that sacrament. One week later, at home, in my wife's arms, Sadie Margaret passed. And one of our pastors put it like this. He said, Otis, what a beautiful picture of Julie holding Sadie and handing her to Jesus. 
Why do I tell you this story? How do I know where Sadie Margaret is? How do I know that? What good, O Israel, can come from Nazareth? Why would God choose David of all of Jesse's sons? Why would God choose Israel, a nation in slavery, to be the nation he would use to bring about his covenantal plan? Why would God use a baby, a baby who was weak and vulnerable, a sojourner in a foreign land, who would grow up to know humility, pain, hunger, suffering, to be mocked and spit on, to be tortured and to be put to death in the most brutal, humiliating fashion one could conceive of to be the Savior of the world. Y'all, when we are broken, when we suffer, when we face hardship and calamity, God's power is made perfect. For we get to glimpse and participate in what our Savior went through. It allows us to focus our eyes on Him. When we are weak, then we are strong. And our weaknesses are not something to be hidden away. Hide it under a bushel. No! But to be showed, boasted, that Christ may be glorified. Also, my weak and sick daughter, we believe, is with Jesus. All the power, might, worth in this world cannot compare to what she is experiencing. There's no more pain. We're, 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 in, we're okay. We do not grieve as those without hope. There's no more suffering. She can breathe. The rough places have been made straight. The tears have been wiped away. God tenderly, Jesus tenderly made a room, laid out the bed. Come on in, Sadie. He does that for each one of you. Her weakness is now her glory. How do I know? I know because of God's covenant relationship with his people and the promises he made to Abraham. I know I'm going over my time. Y'all forgive me. To his descendants and to the children of those who believe. I know this because when David lost a son in 2 Samuel 12, this is what he said. He says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that my child may live. But he is now dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. You see, David understood the covenant with Abraham. He understood that the Lord was keeping his son and that one day they would be reunited in glory. Sadie Margaret's death causes me and my wife 
and my children, we talk a lot about heaven in our house. I don't think we do enough talking about heaven. In the African-American church tradition, they sing a lot about heaven. There's been some real suffering. They think about heaven a lot. I would suggest, he, we, we got it pretty good down here. We're in Clemson, South Carolina. I can go get a Max cheeseburger. I can, right? Things are great. Do we yearn for heaven? We talk about it a lot. We often look to the clouds and to the sunsets. When my children see pink sunsets, you know what they say? Sadie clouds. We're teaching our children to lift their eyes up to the hills. To look to the clouds. To look in anticipation to his return. And perhaps also maybe getting to glimpse her not broken but healthy, breathing, laughing body with Jesus. Her life and death causes me to fix my eyes on heaven. And I know that it's only for a time, this present suffering, and God is at work in it. So Brian Chapel, my homiletics professor, used to say, so what, Pickett? So what? You told us about Sadie Margaret and you read the passage. What Now what? As a church member, do we minister in weakness? How do we minister to our community? Is it flowing out of a recognition of our own brokenness and need for Jesus? Do we minister recognizing we cannot fix what is wrong in the hearts of those we're, we're ministering to? but recognizing that a powerful God can? Do we call to Him to work and work on the hearts of the people or do we try to do it ourselves? Is there a, as Brian Chapel used to say, a redemptive vulnerability in our preaching, in our teaching, in our ministry? One in which the people see you, but when they see you, they just see their need of Jesus. Do we decrease that he might increase? I don't know where you are today. Maybe you feel inadequate for ministry in the life of the church. Maybe you are in a difficult place. Maybe you're struggling with depression, isolation. Maybe you're broken by some besetting sin. And you're doing a really good job of hiding it. Maybe you're sick, stressed out. My grandfather used to say, I'm worn slap out. Or Fannie Lou Hamer in Mississippi used to say, I'm just sick and tired of being sick and tired. Brothers and sisters, in your times of hardship and calamities and weaknesses and in hard times that are sure to come in your life and the lives of the people you walk with, may you see Jesus and may he work powerfully through your weakness. Amen. You pray for us. Dear Holy Father God, thank you for uh, this day. Thank you for your word. 
it is sharp, man. It, it cuts us. It's like a double-edged sword, and it cuts right through the hardness and penetrates right through that toughness in our hearts, that callousness, and just breaks us. Lord God, would you do that today? Lord, would you cause us to see you? Would you cause us to see your Son? Would your Spirit make our hearts soft to the things of you? Lord God, would you knit this body together? Would you be with this church leadership? Would you be with Brian and his family as they minister? And Lord, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I do want to take one quick, I'm not going to give you another point, because the third point to the sermon is the Lord's Supper. All right? But I do want to say a quick moment of personal privilege for my buddy Brian. Brian and I were in seminary together. We were classmates. Brian was one of the men who we knew was going to be a wise, mature, wonderful pastor because he was pastoring us. Has y'all, y'all ever seen uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and what Joseph Arimathea says to, the, to, to Indiana Jones? And I want to say this to your pulpit search committee. You chose wisely. <laughs> you have chosen a man who is humble. He is teachable. He is kind. He is tender-hearted. He is wise. He is thoughtful. But most of all, he and Erica and Garrison and Daniel, JB, Caroline, they love Jesus in their home. I've been in their home. I used to play with their dog, Bo. They love Jesus. I'm honored to sit under his teaching here. Folks, cherish him. He's a gift. Pray for him. Participate in his ministry. Offer encouragement and prayer. Being a pastor is really hard. Uphold his arms when he gets weary. And Brian, to you and your family, I just want to say welcome home. We love you. Come give us the Lord's Supper, brother.